This evening we are in session number eight of our series of studies entitled Living Life Backwards and we are in Ecclesiastes chapter eight this evening. Now in this chapter he continues to explore life under the sun. Okay, These are the things that are happening in this world but he's also approaching it from a slightly different angle in this particular chapter. He's speaking more on how to approach what is happening, the pressures and stresses of life you know, with wisdom, and how the things that we cannot control, how we should be wise enough to accept it and say, hey, look here, I don't understand this, I can't control this, I leave it up to God because God is the one who is in charge. In the first nine verses, he takes up the case you know, of how we should deal with government or people who are in authority. And then in the next 10 uh, verses, he gives us some basic tips, if you were to say, of things that we cannot control. So what's the point of fretting over it? What's the point of getting worried over it? Rather be wise enough to enjoy life that God has given to you, putting God as the focus rather than your situation. So that's going to be the broad outline of our study this evening. So the first verse, you know, he speaks about the importance of wisdom, the importance of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us, who is like a wise person and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom brightens his face and the sternness of his face is changed. Verse 1 is actually serving as a transition between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Whether it concludes chapter 7 or commences chapter 8, this verse is actually like a hinge in between. The thought about how we need to be wise in these, 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 these situations. In the previous chapter, he spoke about you know, comparisons, the things that are good. And then he also told us about some practical areas of wisdom, how we should behave. So it is like continuing on in that and then leading it into this chapter 8. Let me start by giving you two quick illustrations. The first one is about an individual by the name of Helmut von Moltke, who was drafted to work in counterintelligence for Nazi Germany. Yet his Christian faith made him a resolute opponent of Adolf Hitler. Although he believed it would be wrong for him to use violent force against the Nazis, von Moltke used his high position to rescue many prisoners from certain death. Not surprisingly, eventually he was accused of treason, put on trial and sentenced to die. In his final letter home to his beloved wife Freya, Helmut described the dramatic moment at his trial when the judge launched into a long, angry speech of criticism against his faith in Christ. And this is what the judge shouted. He said, only in one respect does the National Socialism resemble Christianity. And that the comparison was, which is common, he said, we demand the whole man. Then the judge asked the accused to declare his ultimate loyalty. From whom do you take your orders? From the other world or from Adolf Hitler? 
where lies your loyalty and your faith? Now, help me one, Moltke, knew exactly where his loyalty lay. He had put all his hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he stood before his earthly judge as a Christian and nothing else. His faith had enabled him to act wisely in government service. And now it enabled him to act wisely when he faced his final hour. As a believer in Christ, Juan Moltke understood the difference between proper exercise of authority and the abuse of power. He also knew the wise course of action when he was under someone else's control and in danger for his very life. So this illustration will give us the foundation for our study in the first few verses about our approach to governments or our approach to people who are in authority. Remember, he was working with the government, but he was a Christian. So how did he manage that? Now, there were wise decisions that he took, you know, but when it came to his faith, the wise decision was he was not going to recant his faith. The second illustration is about motion sickness. When you're traveling in a vehicle, you know, oftentimes some people may feel sick, may feel sick. And if you Google the remedies for motion sickness in a car, you will find that this is the solution they would give you. They will say that you have to actually lift your eyes up from wherever you are because probably you are again fixed on something that is fixed like a book or something like that. You have to look up and to look out, not at the fast passing by scenery that will make you sicker, but you have to look at the far horizon that is fixed and firm and steady. If your mind is fixed there, then your brain will start to sort out what your body is actually doing. In other words, if you are traveling and your brain is giving you the signal, hey, you are sitting down, but things are moving all fast outside, you know. Are you really sitting or are you moving? And that's where the wrong signals that are given makes you feel dizzy and sick. So the solution is to look far into a distance on something that is solid. And this is what doctors would also give you when you feel you know, dizzy, when you're feeling a little imbalanced. They'll say focus on something that is distant, you know, so that that becomes your focus, then your brain signals to say, hey, things are okay. You don't really have to feel dizzy. And that is the principle that we are going to learn over here in this passage. And that is what wisdom is all about. Yes. There are situations around us which are tough. Yes, there are situations around us that would make us dizzy. Yes, there are situations that around us when the authority above us, whether it's the government or people you know, in your work spot or elsewhere, may try and push you down. You know. How do you respond in this type of a situation? And that is what you know, this chapter is all about. Okay. So the preacher is asking this question, how can a person relate to such power and authority? How can a wise person cope with a powerful tyrant? Okay, How does he cope? What are some practical things that we can learn? And I'm sure these lessons would be very valid for us even today because this is still true, isn't it? Whether it's in the country that we live in or whether it's in the company that we work or whether it's any other scenario, people who are in, a, in authority above us, okay, how do we respond to them? You know, this is 
the first part of our lesson. So let's learn some practical lessons from that. So in verses 2 to 9, he's speaking about respecting God and the government. Respecting God and the government. This is the wise decision. Yes, it is not one or the other, you know, you have to respect both, you know. But when it comes to obedience, you know, in verse 2, this is what it reads, you know, keep the king's command because of your oath made before God. In other words, he says, yes, you know, you have to respect both, but when it comes to obedience, obey the government while being loyal to God, while being loyal to God. Now, you must remember that rarely, you know, are all, are any human you know, government righteous. There will be a lot of corruption that will be there in different, different, you know, places of authority. So, we should not expect that corrupt people coming together to form a government will result in righteous rule, okay. So, the verses in 8, in uh, chapter 8, do not seem to speak of human government rectifying problems as much as of us taking care not you know, to go against the government, to fight against it. If you notice in verse 2, he says to keep the king's command. He is not saying keep my command. He is saying the king's command. And then he also says, you know, for the sake of your oath to God. So what he's saying is, you know, yes, you respect authority. Why do we respect authority? Why do we obey the government? Why do we respect authority? It is because God is the one who has put them there. You notice in, in uh, Romans 13, you know, Paul would speak about it, about saying that all governing authorities are in power because of God and they are to be obeyed, except, except in the case where obedience to God takes priority over obedience to authority or the government. If you notice in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul, Peter likewise tells us to be careful regarding both divine as well as human authority. He says, fear God, honor the king. Fear God, honor the king. So that's the first you know, a tip, if you were to say, or the first you know, encouragement and you know, lesson that you know, the preacher is teaching us this evening. Yes, any, each of us will always be under someone's authority somewhere or the other. How do you respect, respond to that? Respect, okay? If their God has put them in authority, obey. As long as it doesn't clash you know, with your obedience to God, okay? So if we want to deal wisely with the government, then we have to live with the tension of obeying the government while still being loyal to God. And this verse sets forth that tension. Obeying God and the government can be in tension or they can also work together. Remember, Jesus shared the same idea in the New Testament in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 17, where he said, Then Jesus told them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So both are important. None of us can say, after all, we don't belong to this kingdom. This kingdom is in a, not ours. We belong to another kingdom. So I'm not bothered about authority. I'm only you know, accountable to God. No, no, no. You know, that is a wrong understanding. God has placed us under authority. It is a God-given authority. And unless a person learns how to 
live under authority, then and then only when authority is given to him or her, they would be able to use that authority wisely. Otherwise, it will only be, you know, I'm the boss, I'm the one who is in control. Why? Because they have never learned how to live under authority. So, this is the first principle that, you know, the preacher is telling us. Secondly, in verse 3, he says, do not be in a hurry, leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause, since he will do whatever he wants. So, he says, okay, stay loyal to the government, stay loyal to the government. Don't be quick to, uh, nah, to leave the ruler. To go from someone's presence nah, signifies a disaffection or a disloyalty. And when he says, you know, if you do this, you know, what will happen? You know, something evil could happen, a bad thing to have could happen. It is because the king has that authority, okay? If we say, I'm not going to obey you, you tell me, you do whatever you want to. The one in authority says, you're disobeying my authority, so, you know, I will punish you, I will sack you, I will do this to you. He has the authority to do that, okay? So, as a result, stay loyal, stay loyal. Remember, dealing with any kind of bureaucracy has its pitfalls. And the preacher's advice on behavior before a king or before a person's authority is you know, applicable to any situation that we may encounter in a bureaucratic level. We achieve nothing you know, by you know, sort of exasperating or, you know, uh, frustrating or putting those in authority in anger. Neither will we get a sympathetic hearing from one to whom we have been discourteous. So be loyal, be courteous, respectful, you know, you know, because if you do that, the chances are there will be a response, you know. But if on the other hand, you say, I'm not going to respond to you, I'm going to disobey you, you may get into trouble. So be careful about that. Say, stay loyal. Do not leave, you know, do not disrespect, you know, the ones who are in authority. Be careful. Thirdly, he says, the government's power is authoritative. In verse 4, he says, for the king's word is authoritative. And who can say to him, what are you doing? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Now, oftentimes, you know, because of the ego that we have and because we think we are the bosses, you know, because a person may think, I want to be the boss, you know, they want to try and pull down the one who is in authority. They want to say, I care two hoots about you. You do what you want to. I'm going to do, you know, what I want to do. But no, no, that is not the biblical pattern of our response to those who are in authority. Remember, God has clearly established the government as a form of earthly authority. Jesus recognized the Romans' authority during his time. And Paul's instruction in Romans 13 gives us this very, very clearly. So we must acknowledge it is a God-given authority. We may not like that individual. You know, we may not want that person to be in authority. But if God has put that person in authority, our responsibility is to say, Lord, you have put this person in charge. I want to respect this person because the power that he has you know, is authoritative. We cannot you know, dare and say, you know, what are you doing? Fourthly, the one who keeps a command, verse 5, the one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful. 
and a wise heart knows the right time and the procedure. A wise citizen stays away from trouble unless it is right to do so. Okay. So, a wise citizen will learn to obey the government. You know. Now, this is simple rules. You know, you know, when you have the licenses that you require and you have all of them, then you are not afraid. But if you don't have all those licenses and you are operating something you know, illegally, you are going to get into trouble. And if the government catches you, don't blame, you know, don't you know, shout, you know, because you have done something wrong. So if you are in the right, it is like if you have a vehicle, you are driving and you have missed a signal and the cop catches you, if you have done something wrong, then you better pay up the fine, you know. Don't you know, be angry with the one who is an authority to catch you for doing wrong. But if on the other hand, you have not done anything wrong, everything is in order, you don't really have to worry. You don't have to experience anything harmful because the wise heart knows the right time and the procedure. Okay? So basically, this verse is saying, stay out of trouble. Don't trouble trouble unnecessarily. You do your job, that which is expected of you, you pay your taxes on time, you get all your licensing done, do everything that the government asks you to do because they are the ones who are in authority. But, you know, if you don't have all that, you know, then you are unnecessarily troubling yourself and you will get into harm. Verse 6, for every activity there is a right time and a procedure, even though man's troubles are heavy on him. Every situation has its right time and place. But worries make it hard for one to wait. Dealing with the government, dealing with bureaucracy, dealing with standard times, those who are in authority can cause us to worry. Yet, one has to learn patience in dealing with it. One of the reasons to be patient with the government is because they live with the same uncertainty as we do. Okay? There's nothing certain. There's nothing permanent, you know. So, as a result, learn to be patient. Don't worry. Allow God to do things in His proper time. Then NIV renders the phrase in a, as proper time and procedure. And the New American Commentary notes, the wise man thus waits for the proper moment to make his case or take a stand and does not waste his influence on a lost cause. This is wisdom. Wisdom here leads to proper caution and can sometimes result in influencing rulers towards a positive change. So don't get upset because things are not done you know, immediately, because the papers are not moving very fast. You know. Don't try to bribe to you know, get things done. No, no. Allow God to do His work in His time. Every situation has its right time and place. But if you're going to worry and fret over it, it's going to make life difficult for you. Verse 7, yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? Governments live with the same uncertainty in life as everyone else. Okay? Today one government is there, the next day that government goes. You know, today one person is in authority, the next day maybe that person is transferred somewhere else. Okay? They also have that uncertainty. So, as much as you and I live in uncertainties in life, those in authority also are dealing 
with uncertainties and any bureaucracy has its own uncertainties and difficulties. So as a result, we should show patience with those who are in authority. They are also going through different, different situations about the future. It is not that they are there only to do your job, isn't it? You know, they also have their issues in life. So trust God, wait patiently, respect them, don't get worried and upset. Why? Verse 8 gives us the clue, if you were to say, no one has authority over the wind to restrain it. And there's no authority over the day of death. There's no furlough in battle. And wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. No one has ultimate power except God. So if God has the ultimate power, trust in God. Trust in God. Now, do not get upset with people. Bring your case to God because he is the topmost. He has the ultimate power. He is the ultimate authority. So bring your case to God. Trust him to handle it. So the writer of Ecclesiastes in this particular verse you know, is actually using death as the reference point to explain the power of God. A couple of, you know, he has broken this verse into different, different sections to help us to understand that. First of all, no one has the power over the spirit. No one has authority over the wind to restrain it. You know, each man has a body, soul and spirit. You know, no individual can stop his spirit. You know. The reason is because no one can live forever in their mortal bodies. You know. There is going to come a time when the spirit is going to be separated. Dust to dust, the body dies, you know, but the spirit lives on forever. He cannot say, I have the spirit under my grasp when I die. No, once a person dies, the spirit leaves. So he doesn't have power over his spirit. Neither has he power over their death. Second part of verse 8, and there's no authority over the day of death, you know, that no one has the power over their own death, you know. Sometimes a person will say, no, no, I have the power, I can kill myself. But there are people who have tried killing themselves and they have not died. Others will say, no, but I have the power to prolong my life, you know. So we can take steps to make, you know, the coming of our death more comfortable maybe, you know, prolong it. But at the end, nobody can stop death from happening. So, because you don't have control over your own spirit, because you don't have control over your own death, thirdly, no one has the power to escape death. No one has the power to escape death. Death is a certainty. There's no furlough in battle. Or when you're in a war, you can't take a break. You know, there's no discharge in the war. You're an army, you have to be there. You, know, you can't take a break or a leave during that period. So what he's saying, this is the certainty. Every man who's born into this world has to die. There's no option. Whether it's the most authoritative person here on earth, whether the person is in charge of the biggest superpower in this kingdom on this earth, he or she still has to die. Okay? Nobody can escape that fact. Even though today he may think, I'm the boss, one day he has to die. So ultimate power and authority belongs to God. And the final part in that verse, he says, and wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. So he says, no one has the power over their spirit, no one has their power over their own death, 
but no one also have the power of the consequences of their life after death, you know, after death. In other words, he's saying, here's an individual who thinks he's a boss, he thinks he can be a tyrant, he thinks he can put down people, he can, you know, sort of do whatever he wants to, but there's a consequence to pay after he dies because death is certain. Nobody can rescue themselves from those consequences, you know. In verse 9, he says, all this I have seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun, at a time when no, when one man has authority over another to his harm. He says, I've observed this, you know, there are people, as we say, absolute power corrupts absolutely, power abuses relationships, you know. So be careful how you use it, because... As long as you're in power, you may say that you are the boss, one day you will die. After that, what is going to happen? Consequences are going to be there. So if God has given you that authority, if God has given you that position, remember, with great power also comes great responsibility. So if God has given you that position, God has given you that authority, learn how to use it. If you use it selfishly, you know, then you have to face the consequences of it. But if we use it to honor God, that will be the wisest thing that you can do. So in these first nine verses, he has given us some practical tips about how to respond to those in authority. And he also concludes with, if you are the person who has an authority, how should we use that authority? Don't abuse that authority. Use it to help others. Then verses 10 to 17, you know, he gives us seven things that we cannot control, okay? Even though you may be the boss, even though you have all the power as it were, you know, but there are certain things in life you just cannot control. Man doesn't want to face this reality. Man thinks that he can control everything, you know, and he designs events, he designs things, he says, I can prolong my life so that I don't die. He does all sorts of things to show that he is the master or to say, to think that he is God himself because he is the one in control. No, no. God is the one who is in control. So there are certain things in life, seven things in these next verses where the preacher is saying, remember, a wise person understands these things, you know, that he can't really control these things. So let's look at these seven things. The first one in verse 10, in such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they did so. This too is futile. So the first thing that he says we cannot control is death. He says even the wicked are definitely going to die. You can't control death. It will eventually happen. And this is why going to a funeral brings your life into perspective. Here Solomon went to the funeral of a wicked person, you know, look at what he's saying, okay, I saw the wicked buried, they went from the holy place and they were praised in the city where they did so. Obviously, the wicked person was not allowed to be buried in the holy place, so they went from that, okay, but they were praised in the city, okay, but when it came, if you were to say for their afterlife, they had to bear the consequences of that, you know. So, whether a person thinks that he's going to live on forever, no. Whether a person thinks he's going to have that authority forever, no. One day, each one of us 
will definitely die. So, the preacher noticed that even though a wicked person was praised when they came to worship, you know, in the end, the praise was futile because death came to that individual. So, death is something that we cannot control. Let's learn to live with that and let's also prepare ourselves for that because that's the only certain thing in life, you know. We do not know when we will die, but that's a certain thing. Even though we cannot control it, it's a certain thing. So learn, a wise person prepares himself or herself for that day. Secondly, in verse 11, he says, Because the sentence against a criminal act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with a desire to commit crime. So verse 11 is explaining why... Why does evil grow worse and worse and worse? Why? Because justice doesn't happen quickly. Justice doesn't happen quickly. Now we say, why doesn't God bring about justice immediately? You must also realize that God in his great mercy is giving time people to repent. But ultimately, God will intervene. Ultimately, God's judgment will come. It's just a matter of time, okay? thing that Solomon is saying here is you can't control the depravity of the human heart. You can't co- stop people from sinning. Only God can do that. You may think I am the boss. I can change the hearts of people. No, no, no. You know, the heart of man, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. And the, a person who does the wrong will say, I'm not punished, you know, even though this guy was in authority. So I can get away with murder, you know. And he continues on. And we may wonder, how is this person behaving like this? This is the truth. You, know? you cannot control that nature, the sinful nature. It is only God, when he comes into our lives, who takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, puts his spirit within us. That is where our sinful nature is redeemed and transformed. So, if you are living in the one who is in authority, if you think you can change the heart of man, no, you cannot change it. The heart of man is thoroughly depraved. And if you have been in any authoritative position, you would experience this, you would know this. There are some people whom we may say they are beyond redemption, but no man is beyond redemption, you know, because God is still waiting for them to change because God is the one who works in their hearts. Thirdly, in verse 12, he says, Although a sinner commits crime a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I also know (coughs) that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. (coughs) For they are reverent before him. Here he's saying, okay, here's a person who commits a wrong, but nothing is happening to him. Nothing is happening to him, okay? Now, his life is continuing on. But he's also speaking in contrast. A person who fears God, you know, things will go well for him. In other words, God will truly deliver that person. A sinner commits a crime and he's delivered from punishment in the short term. Okay. This can make you frustrated to see that kind of injustice, you know. But he's saying, no, if we stay connected to God and respect him, he will ultimately deliver us from this seemingly unjust world. And this is what is called as divine justice. Remember Asaph, you know, the psalm writer in Psalm 73, 
he says, when I thought how to understand all this, why the righteous prospering, it was too painful for me. Till I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Or then I understood what is true deliverance. You know? Deliverance is something that we cannot control. It is God finally who delivers. Usually the preacher tells us what he saw, but this time he chooses a different verb and tells us something that he knows, you know, that he knows. If you notice in the second half of verse 12, he says, Yet I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people. It will go well with God-fearing people. This is not an, an act of observation. This is a statement of faith. He believes what he cannot see, that there will come a day when it will be well, when there will be true deliverance for those for those who fear God, who are said to fear before Him. In other words, for those who recognize His presence or recognize in a, that they are in the presence of God. That is the meaning of fear in His presence. Who are living consciously every day that God is there with them. God is there in them. Most people, including many Christians, go through life hardly realizing that they are constantly in the presence of God. But the person who fears God knows that God is always near. And to live a God-fearing life is to live in constant awareness of the presence of God, who is even closer than a prayer. God is there with us. The realization of His presence, that is what the fear of God is all about, you know. The fear of God basically is God seeing, God is there with me, so how can I do this wrong? So if a person is aware of that presence, then he knows that he's in control. It's not my job to deliver myself, you know. You know God is the one who will ultimately deliver me. Verse 13, however, it will not all go well with the wicked. They will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. There's the contrast of that. The one who is God-fearing, what will happen? And the one who does not fear God, the wicked, what will happen? Okay, he says, however, it will not go well. Okay, it will not lengthen their days, even though there seems to be a delay. That's the delay we cannot control. We can't control the delay of that divine justice. We want the wicked to be punished when? Yesterday. It's not that we want the wicked to be punished tomorrow. He said, God, why are you allowing this wicked person to you know, not just you know, survive but thrive and you know, take you know, the hand over me? God, why don't you punish this person immediately? That's our cry. But the Lord is saying, no, there is going to be a punishment, but it is in my hands. You know? Yes, there is a delay, but God is keeping account. The wicked will receive the right punishment for their sins. So just as much as the preacher spoke about the righteous in the presence of God, the preacher is also emphasizing here that there will be a final writing of all the wrongs. You know, there will be a final judgment for all those people who have misused their authority. True, he was troubled by the common injustices of life in a fallen world, but he was also convinced that God will make things right in the end. There are things we cannot control, yes. The delays of God is something we cannot control. 
We may want God to do things immediately. That is not in our hands. Trust God. Trust God that he is the one who will make things right in the end. Then in verse 14, he says, there's a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say, this too is futile. He says, <laughs> the wicked people are getting the benefits. The righteous people are getting the curses. Hey, this is not right. There's so much of damage that is being, you know, and are uh, done and uh, to the righteous person. He says, this is unjust judgment, unjust damage. Bad people are getting rewarded and good people are getting punished. You know? He says, this is unjust. You know? The Lord says, hey, no, no, you know, I'm the one who is in control. Give judgment to me. Ed Strauss, in his book entitled, God Always Wins Through, tra through Tragedy, Through Evil, through all eternity. That's the title of the book. This is what he writes in that book. He says, we are well aware that despite our best efforts to live righteously, we are not always blessed with prosperity, health, or acceptance. God does reward righteousness, and he does answer prayer, but not always according to our timetable, and not always the way we expect and much of the time, frankly, it may seem as if he chooses not to answer at all. So if you feel like the words of this writer, he says, God, why are you not doing anything? You know, I'm the one who is suffering. He says, no, no, God is the one who will definitely answer. So even though we know that God will execute divine justice in the end, you know, we want to see the damage to be done right away. We may say, in my lifetime, I want to see this guy suffering for all that he did to me. The Lord says, no, no, no. You know, give the judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Then verse 15, and he says, so I commended enjoyment because there's nothing better for man under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself. For this will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. The sixth thing that we cannot control is our destiny, is our destiny. We cannot control our destiny, you know, but we can definitely recognize, you know, that if we are willing to give our hands, our lives into the hands of God, then God is the one who controls our destiny. And this is the perspective that must be maintained all the time to recognize that yes god is the one who will set things right yes so i give myself to god and instead of just saying okay and i, I want to make you know uh, something good out of this bad situation you know anyway i'm going to die so eat drink and be merry no that's not what the preacher is saying over yes what he's saying here is you know i commend enjoyment i commend enjoyment what he's saying here is you know a God-centered perspective, a God-centered perspective, recognizing, yes, God has given you this life. It's a gift from God. So as a result, instead of worrying and fretting, you know, he's saying, I'm recommending joy to you. I'm recommending joy to you. Yes, you know, there is futility, frustration in this world. But, you know, instead of getting bogged down with all the injustices, 
I'm allowing you to have a different focus. Instead of getting dizzy with all these things, keep your eyes fixed, focused, you know, so that you won't feel sick, you know. Keep your eyes focused on what? On God who is in charge of your life. He is your final destiny. There is joy then in the everyday events of life. You know, all that we do during the day, God has given this life to me. So when you get up in the morning, instead of saying, good Lord, another morning, I have to sit under this guy, I have to work under this guy, I have all these pressures. Instead of looking life from that perspective, say, Lord, I thank you for this day that you have given to me. I want to rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. So we can't control the destiny of life. We can't control the ultimate fate, you know. But we can definitely, when we give ourselves to God, we can see God working things out in our lives. So you don't get to create your own destiny that is create, determined by God. But you can have a choice to accept his destiny for you. Or you can choose to reject that. You know? But this is the destiny that God has for you. So the, the plan that God has for you and me is the very best. So instead of getting frustrated, let's learn to look up to God. Because it is Christ's death on the cross which has made this life here on earth so much more meaningful, so much more purposeful. Because life then is viewed from a different perspective. Not eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die, but to view things as this is a gift that you have given to me, Lord. You have given me life for a purpose. And whatever I'm going through life, I want to focus my attention on the unchangeable God, on the powerful God. And as a result of it, Lord, I want to live for you. And that is true enjoyment for of life. So this is the discovery that he makes in the closing verses, verses 16 and 17. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes do not close in sleep day or night, I observed all the work of God and concluded that man is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. Even though a man labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. And even if the wise man claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. This is his conclusion. And, uh, and he says, yes, these are the seven things that you know, we don't have any control over. And the final one that he's saying here over here is, I do not know. Okay, there are some questions you know, that I have no answers for. Solomon realizes that not everything is worth investigating. <coughs> In other words, some discoveries are not worth the time. They are not worth the time. But discovering all that God has for me, you know, allowing him to do his work in my life, that is the wisest thing that we can do. Instead of having all the questions to say, why Lord, why Lord, you know, and we want to know all the answers to questions, but we don't want to live for him. The discovery on our part, the wiseness on our part is to say, Lord, you are God. You are the final authority. You are the all-powerful one. There would definitely be things as a finite mind. I cannot know fully. There are questions that will be unanswered. There will be questions that will be answered only when we see you face to face. The scripture tells us when we see him, we shall be like him. You know, we will get all the answers then. So, 
live life here on earth, understanding that there are these things you cannot control, but there is an ultimate authority, the power and authority of God, into whose life, into whose hands, if we give our lives, then he is the one who controls us. And if he, the one who is the ultimate authority, our life is in his hands, then we can say with confidence, many things about tomorrow, I don't seem to understand, but I know he holds the future, and I know that he holds my hand. Couple of application questions before we close this evening. Number one, how should believers conduct themselves before government leaders? What should be our attitude to those people who are in authority? Number two, what does fretting over inequities, which is a lack of fairness or justice, and injustices and inabilities say about one's relationship to their creator? When you are fretting about the injustices that are happening on this world, then what does it say about your relationship to your Creator? Number three, what has been your experience of navigating the challenges of being under human authorities? Do you agree with the preacher's advice? Is that how you tend to operate? If you have been working under someone who is an authority, you know, have you had the response that Solomon is asking us to do? Or has there been a challenge to you? Number four, what does the New Testament teach about how to navigate human authority relationships? How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus, the Son of God, when he came down to earth, there was human authority above him. How did he respond to that? And what can we learn from that? Number five, in what ways have you seen God use you to oppose corrupt systems and stand up and serve those in need in Jesus' name? Okay. There are certain things, yes, we need to stand up for. We ought to obey God rather than man. What areas of society has the church failed to love in this way? And how can you as a member of the body of Christ address this? Number six, as you have gained biblical wisdom in your walk with Christ, what areas of your life have been impacted the most? And finally, number seven, in the present world, how can we balance recognizing the presence of sin, upholding the sovereignty of God, and engaging in an effective ministry? How can we strike the balance between these three? Let's bow our heads and pray together.